Politics, Politics, and Life Sciences Radio, also known as PLS Radio, is a show about the interplay of life sciences and politics. PLS Radio is hosted by Dean L. Finelli, Ph.D., an intellectual property attorney in Washington, D.C., whose practice focuses on issues connected to the life sciences industry. PLS explores cutting-edge topics involving the biotech and pharma ecosystems, political and governmental policy issues affecting the biotech and pharma industries, and much more. PLS guests include scientists, business, medical professionals, media personalities, newsmakers, and political leaders. Politics and Life Sciences Radio is your place for hot topic discussions and real news in the life sciences industry. Now, it's time for Politics and Life Sciences Radio with your host, Dr. Dean L. Finelli. Good afternoon. This is Dean Finelli on Politics and Life Science Radio. Thank you for joining us today. I am very excited to have as our guest today, Mr. Peter Pitts. Peter is the president and co-founder of the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest, and he's former FDA Associate Commissioner for External Relations. So really looking forward to speaking with Peter today. Uh, Before we do so, let's uh, catch up on what's going on uh, around the world. And uh, obviously, uh, the coronavirus vaccines are dominating the uh, life science industry these days. Uh, Certainly good news uh, with regard to the vaccine rollout. That seems to be uh, getting a lot smoother. Uh, We recently saw J&J authorized last weekend, and the vaccine rollout has now topped 100 million uh, doses that have been distributed, and over 80 million people have been vaccinated at least least once with about 30 million uh, fully vaccinated, meaning they've been vaccinated uh, twice with the either the Pfizer or Moderna virus. So certainly great news, and we're starting to see that light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, as I mentioned, J&J, their vaccine was authorized last weekend, and that started rolling out this week a little slowly than anticipated, but it looks like by the end of this month they should be up to about 20 million doses Uh, distributed. So that'll certainly help. And as we roll into April, uh, things should really start picking up. Uh, The Biden administration said that vaccine will be available for all adults by May. This is uh, moving up those goalposts from uh, previously. It was thought we'd be somewhere in the June, July timeframe. Now it looks like we're in May. And if things continue to go as well as they are, maybe we'll be even sooner. uh, President Biden invoked the uh, Defense Production Act to boost production of the J&J vaccine, and it looks like Merck, who's one of the world-class leaders in vaccine development, will be assisting uh, with the manufacture of uh, Johnson & Johnson's vaccine. Uh, other news uh, we heard yesterday, or uh, earlier this week, uh, Governor Abbott of Texas announced that he was removing all government mandates, all state mandates for businesses, for requirements to wear masks. And I think it's important to point out because obviously this is a pretty hot topic and it got politicized very quickly. Uh, Certainly the governor did not say the pandemic was over, nor did he say people should not wear masks or should stop wearing masks. Uh, He's basically, his point was, you know, based on the knowledge we have at this point, if we juxtapose what we know now compared to last year, last year at this time, 
We weren't familiar with the transmissibility of the virus. We didn't know about asymptomatic transmission. We didn't know about the mortality associated with the virus or the demographic that was at highest risk. And certainly we didn't know if or when we'd ever have a vaccine. Those questions have all been answered. So to the governor's point, uh, he's saying based on the knowledge they have now, the way the rollouts rolled, uh, worked in Texas, uh, looking at the, that high-risk demographic of people over 65, he's certainly not saying don't wear a mask. He's not telling businesses they should be packed. And, you know, certainly I, I'm guessing we're not going to see uh, the Rangers and the Astros next month with packed stadiums. But it is important to realize that, you know, when people see that green light, you know, their people could take down their guard. So uh, it's important to emphasize that although the governor is removing state mandates, this is just merely saying, you know, the state's not going to require people to act a certain way or require businesses to act a certain way. But it's still important for people to act in a safe and responsible manner. He was very uh, clear about that. So, you know, let's keep our fingers crossed for Texas. Hopefully that's a roadmap to kind of guide the nation to start opening up because I can tell you we're all really tired with this virus and uh, wearing masks and where we are. But again, we can kind of see that light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, one of the issues that's been around is obviously this herd immunity and whether it's 70 percent of Americans being vaccinated or 90 percent. Uh, an important aspect to keep in mind is the current vaccines are authorized uh, with regard to Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson for people 18 and older and excuse me, Moderna and Johnson and Johnson, 18 and older. And with regard to Pfizer, 16 and older. So a large chunk of the population, children under the age of 16 currently are not allowed to get the vaccines at this point. It's not authorized to children under 16. Uh, currently Pfizer is conducting studies as is Moderna uh, down to 13-year-olds, and it looks like they'll gradually try to expand that downward uh, in children. But uh, it looks like well into 2022 before uh, vaccines are authorized for children uh, broadly, you know, down to maybe elementary school children. So, you know, when we think about herd immunity, we're just talking about adults. Uh, there's about 70 million children under the age of 18 or people under the age of 18. Uh, so, you know, hitting herd immunity, when we talk about 70% uh, to 90%, I think that's why we're seeing this fluctuation in numbers. Uh, you know, a lot of people are being a little hard on Dr. Fauci, saying he keeps shifting the goalposts. Uh, but, you know, science is an iterative process. You know, the a lot of we're learning in real time. So he's trying to give us information in real time. And I think, you know, we have to remember Dr. Fauci is a scientist, not a politician. Uh, science is empirical. And as I mentioned you kind of learn things iteratively Pol politics is about the optics and you know how that science and public policy plays into that political narrative so you know i think dr fauci's doing as good a job as he can do uh to our show now this is dean finale on politics and life science radio i'm very excited to welcome our guest peter pitts uh peter welcome uh peter is the president and co-founder of the center for medicine in public interest and former fda associate commissioner of external relations. Uh, Peter uh, was the associate commissioner serving as senior communications and policy advisor to the commissioner. He super, uh, supervised FDA's Office of Public Affairs, Office of the Ombudsman, Office of Special Health Issues, Office of Executive Secretary. 
and Advisory uh, Committee Oversight and Management. Uh, Peter, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Timely, timely visit. <laughs> so, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest? Well, thanks for asking. CMPI, which is cmpi.org, is a not-for-profit think tank, and our main focus is advancing uh, access to safe and effective medicines through the FDA's adoption of 21st century science of recognizing that healthcare is an ecosystem, that we shouldn't be uh, pointing guns at each other, that when we work together, we can accomplish uh, amazing things as we have done in the battle against COVID-19. And what exactly uh, does the center do uh, as it relates to uh, uh, public interest and uh, COVID-19? What have you done specifically uh, with regard to COVID-19? We've been doing a, a lot of research on how to uh, incorporate modern clinical trial design, uh, the use of real-world evidence, the, the patient voice, quality of, of life data, you know, the ability that we've got to use new methodologies to bring products to market to combat COVID-19 both more quickly and more safely, whether that's diagnostic testing, therapeutics like remdesivir, or the three vaccines that are currently on the market using very exciting new types of technology. And when you think about diagnostics, that's been one of the issues, I think, in this country that, you know, I, I really think it's a medical marvel having, you know, two vaccines authorized in less than a year and now a third vaccine authorized. But, you know, one thing I think that we did, as a country, we didn't really do a, as good enough job as we probably could have is with the, the rollout of diagnostics. There seems to have been this focus on, you know, high specificity rather than let's get an at-home diagnostic out to the masses. And, you know, what, what are your thoughts with regard to uh, that aspect of the, the virus and the, uh, how diagnostics have been rolled out? Well, you know, the, the status quo is a harsh mistress. And when we first recognized that we would have to develop uh, testing for COVID-19, again, you can't just simply snap your fingers and voila, they exist. On the other hand, you can't use old types of technology or old types of regulatory review where the FDA would say generally, that's great, run through these tests, and then in nine or 10 months, possibly, we'll be able to give you a uh, emergency use authorization or an approval. We needed these tests quickly. Uh, we need to figure out what worked and what didn't. And what we found out early on in the proposition was we didn't really know how to both develop tests that were fast and accurate, but also how to review and, and authorize them. So we held back initially. We weren't sure what to do. And then the pendulum swung in the other direction. We began to allow tests on the market too quickly that weren't accurate, which means that obviously people get bad results, but equally bad, they lose faith uh, in the system. And then we learned how to work together to make sure that tests that are coming to market were accurate as well as properly regulated in a way where people could get a hold of these tests relatively quick. And once we recognized the problem and that we had to work together to solve it in new ways, we did. And now we have a whole host of diagnostics that are both uh, quick and accurate, which is really where we want to get to. And even though it seems that it took us a long time to get there, uh, in the reality, we, we cut the time radically in half. Uh, that's certainly true when we, I mean, just about everything seems like it was just you know, working at light speed, I think Operation Warp Speed, at least in my opinion, was a, a laid the groundwork to get a lot of this done and was a success in getting these rolled out. How do you think, um, you know, what do you think we've learned from this, uh, you know, authorization of these vaccines? And how do you think that the FDA and, and pharmaceutical and biotech companies uh, will use this as a kind of a learning example to get more 
uh, drugs and, and other therapeutics to the public in a, a more timely fashion. Well, consider this, you know, if a year ago when we were just on the cusp of this pandemic, if I had said, you know, in a year, we're going to have a whole host of diagnostics that are quick and accurate and inexpensive, accessible to wide portions of the population. We're going to have a basket full of therapeutics to help people stay alive. And, and we're going to have three vaccines, two of which come from brand new mRNA technology and we'll have, and we'll be reaching herd immunity probably by Memorial Day. You would say to me, you're crazy, what are you smoking? But that's exactly what happened. I think the lesson learned from COVID-19 is that when we work together, we can accomplish miracles. I hope that we can recognize that beyond dealing with COVID-19, these lessons can be applied to healthcare writ large so we can get new types of therapy technologies developed and through the FDA into patients quicker and uh, more safely than we ever have before. And we can, but we have to remember, we can't go backwards and hide in our silos. We have to come out of our silos full time and work together on these propositions. Academia, government, biopharmaceutical companies, physicians, patients. You know, there's a whole host of uh, pieces of this ecosystem that need to work together on a regular basis to help solve the problem and move American health. Now, I spoke a little bit about uh, Texas and dropping its, its state mandate. Uh, how do you feel about that, just in your opinion? Uh, you know, was that a little too, too quick, in your opinion, or do you think we could trust individuals at this point to kind of act in a safe and responsible manner? Well, it's Texas and Mississippi. And I, I think that uh, removing the statewide mask mandate is, is a mistake. I, re- I recognize, you know, what the governors are saying, and I understand intellectually what they're trying to accomplish, but the fact is nobody likes wearing a mask. And when, and when you see the headline that says mask mandate removed, that means masks are going to be removed. And that can't happen. People have to recognize that even after they're vaccinated, they can still contract COVID-19 and they can still spread COVID-19. Even though they may not suffer severe manifestations of COVID after having gotten the vaccine, they still remain infectious to other people. So the whole concept of us having to look out not just for ourselves, but for our friends, our neighbors, our cities, our state, and and the nation, really require that we keep our masks on. And sending a signal that maybe it's okay to take them off is the wrong message. I think this is uh, an ill-considered proposition. Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with you there. And, you know, again, keeping our fingers crossed, hopefully this doesn't backfire in in Texas and, as you mentioned, in Mississippi. Uh, As far as uh, the the upcoming uh, vaccines, have you been following some of the other companies, AstraZeneca, Novavax, that are uh, still in development at this point? Yes, I think that the AstraZeneca vaccine is the next uh, shoe to drop. I think that they will submit their data to the FDA first. There have been some data collection and analytics problems with AstraZeneca relative to the FDA, but I think they're working on that very hard and that they will probably submit their vaccine for FDA review. You know, certainly I would think by the end of March, early April, and that would probably also be turned around relatively swiftly relative to an emergency use authorization, which means we would then have four vaccines available, which would even further accelerate uh, the uh, effort to reach herd immunity in this country. Now, the problem, another problem with AstraZeneca is that the European countries are denying that they will are denying export of AstraZeneca vaccines outside of Europe. So that's a political problem. But once it's approved by the FDA, again, it's another tool in the, in the COVID-19 armamentarium, an important one. Novavax is a little bit further out, maybe in the summer, maybe a little bit after Labor Day. 
But I suspect that even based on the three vaccines that we have now via emergency use authorization, that we should be able to reach herd immunity at the earliest by Memorial Day, the latest by the 4th of July. So taking that patriotic theme forward, we still need to do our, our best as individuals. We need to wear masks, do appropriate social distancing, continue to uh, wash our hands and maintain enhanced personal hygiene and get vaccinated. You know, one of the interesting things about the vaccination programs in the U.S. now is now we're all talking about and reading about people getting frustrated that they can't get vaccinated soon enough. That's replaced the story that preceded that, which was all about people not wanting to get vaccinated, about having vaccine skepticism. So we're definitely moving in the right direction. And the beauty of the Johnson Johnson vaccine is it's a single dose vaccine versus the two doses for Pfizer and Moderna. And the J&J vaccine can be stored at temperatures that uh, existing pharmacy fridges can accomplish. So that means people can go to their local pharmacies and their local doctor's offices to get vaccinated. And that's really important for a host of reasons, not the least of which is for communities of color where the healthcare professionals they trust are their pharmacists and their own local doctors. So that should help overcome a lot of vaccine skepticism on the part of those communities as well. So all things are looking pretty upright now. I'm very positive. This is Dean Finelli. I'm speaking with Peter Pitts, who's president and co-founder of the Center for Medicine and Public Interest and former FDA Associate Commissioner for External Relations. Peter, you mentioned uh, about the uh, lack of export of the AstraZeneca vaccine out of Europe, and it made me think of um, back early on last March when we first were hearing about the spread of the virus and a lot of people didn't know what was going on, and we heard uh, countries like India and China saying they were going to stop the export of certain drugs and uh, sort of hoard those drugs just to protect their their own citizens. Um, shifting gears a little bit from COVID and vaccines, you know, when we think about generic drugs and antibiotics, a lot of those uh, are acquired abroad. And we kind of saw for the first time, you know, I, I think this has been an issue that's been out there for quite some time, but it was really brought to the forefront that a lot of our drugs, especially generic drugs and antibiotics, we rely on foreign countries. And, you know, when we hear about this uh, China as a potential, you know, geopolitical adversary, you know, what's your opinion on um, the reliance on foreign countries for some of these critical drugs? Well, you know, there are a couple of ways to approach that. You know, the first thing that's really important to say is that FDA generic drugs are safe and effective. You know, some of those drugs are manufactured by Indian companies, but overwhelmingly, they're manufactured by multinational companies using parts of the process from other countries. So, for example, India produces a lot of what's called active pharmaceutical ingredient, API, and excipients. Mm -hmm. They may be manufactured by a well-known international brand, but the component parts come from India or China. And that's really important, because just like rare metals, where we import them from China, we have to recognize that these countries, if they so chose to, could basically freeze us out of the pieces of the puzzle that we need to manufacture safe and uh, effective generic drugs. Now, I'm not saying we need to bring all of that here into the U.S. because that would require a massive increase in pricing, and that's clearly not acceptable. But we have to diversify. You know, it's like they used to say that you know, having Walmart as your biggest client and your only client is dangerous because they could basically put you out of business tomorrow. We have to understand that we need plan B scenarios if a government became unfriendly and chose to deny us either the finished product or the pieces of the finished product that we need to continue our supply 
of generic drugs. So it isn't one or the other. It has to be a hybrid. And that's a strategy that I think that the Biden administration is going to be looking at, as opposed to the Trump administration that said, let's just bring this all home. Uh, that's simply not plausible. Uh, there's no excess capacity here in the U.S. of pharmacies that make pill, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturing facilities that make pills. They do, they're all running at full, at full tilt right now. But we, we need, but we do need ways to diversify to protect against you know, potential uh, pharmaceutical blackmail by certain countries if they chose to use that. And when you think about, you know, making alternative means to, to generate drugs, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, we certainly hear about people that can't afford to pay for their drugs and people going across the border to Canada to get drugs uh, in, a, in a cheaper manner. And uh, certainly, you know, there's this issue of pharmacy benefit managers and, you know, the high cost of certain drugs in the U.S. And I, I say this as, uh, honestly, as a patent attorney who works with brand companies to help protect their their inventions, which, you know, arguably, you know, drives up the cost of drugs. Of course, that's on the innovator side. But, you know, how do you feel about this whole issue of drug pricing? And, you know, how do we solve this issue about people, you know, especially when you think of seniors who are having to make choices between, you know, paying for utilities or paying for drugs or going across the border to get their, their drugs? That's a great question. Um, you know, when most people say, quote, my drugs are too expensive, unquote, what they generally mean is my copay is too expensive. And the, the, the raise of copays, the increase in copays has outpaced the price of drugs about 10 to 1 over the last couple of years. So, you know, the issue of how to reduce the price of drugs really comes down to how do you reduce copays? How do you make it more fair? Uh, you mentioned pharmacy benefit managers. Pharmacy benefit managers negotiate with drug companies to reduce the price of drugs and get massive discounts, but they don't pass those discounts along to the consumer. They're public companies. These uh, negotiated prices go into their own coffers to enhance their stock price. And now lots of state governments and now the federal government is saying, no, if you've negotiated a lower price from the manufacturer, you've got to pass along a larger percentage to the consumer. Now, you know, 80, 85% of all the drugs by volume consumed in the U.S. are generic drugs. Generic drugs are less expensive in the U.S. than they are in Europe. So this whole canard of drugs are less expensive in other countries, it just completely uh, doesn't make any sense. You know, nobody pays the list price of a pharmaceutical product. They pay the negotiated price minus their copay and their premium. So it's a very complicated and the uh, the pharmacy benefit managers for many years have gotten away with hiking up their copays, you know, enormously by blaming the drug companies. It sounds right, but it's not right. It's a total disconnect. Uh, drug importation is a horrible idea for a whole host of reasons, certainly from a safety perspective. It, it doesn't lower costs to the consumer because generic, generic drugs, which mostly people use here, are less expensive here. And for prescription drugs, people that have insurance, their copays are less expensive than the list price in Canada. It's kind of like what H.L. Mencken said, which was, for every complex problem, there's a simple solution that's wrong. You know, this is an ecosystem problem that's got to be dealt with uh, via an ecosystem solution. And step one in that process is being transparent and telling the truth about where the money goes. Yeah, it's definitely a complicated issue. And it's just when you think about all these moving parts that go into our 
our drug system and the, the pharmaceutical companies and the manufacturers, the pharmacy benefit man, uh, pharmacy benefit managers, the the end retailers and consumers and insurance getting all this involved. It's it's really a complex issue. I agree with you. And um, you know, one question I did want to ask you: you you have recently uh, written a book, "Become Strategic or Die," and it's widely recognized as a cutting edge study on. Uh, leadership. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your book? Sure. Uh, Become Strategic or Die says if you don't think ahead, uh, you're never going to get to where you want to end up. And there's a difference between strategy, which is thinking, understanding what your goal is, and then putting all your resources against it, and tactics. Tactics are a dime a dozen. If we only focus on tactics, sometimes you hit it right, oftentimes you don't, but you, you, you lack the ability to focus on the, on the end goal. I have a new book out called The Value Equation, which is available on Amazon. And my argument there is in discussing, you know, innovation and intellectual property rights, you know, and, you know, improving access for patients. We really have to focus on the importance of innovation, because if you don't have innovation, nothing happens. And if you don't reward innovation through fair and appropriate pricing, companies aren't going to invest in doing it. And that innovation, certainly in the biopharmaceutical sector, don't come from the government. The National Institutes of Health give out grants and they do tremendous work, but the, the overwhelming volume of new drugs that come to the market are through private investment. And if we don't reward that, either the inc- we don't get incremental innovation, which is generally what happens, and we never get discontinuous innovation where all of a sudden, from one day to the next, things change because of a new innovation. That rarely happens, but sometimes it does. You know, lately we've seen COVID-19. We had no vaccines against COVID-19. We had no therapeutics to fight COVID-19. We had no diagnostics. And unless you reward people putting their resources against these goals, most of which fail, you're not going to get it. And that's not acceptable. Great stuff. Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you so much for all this valuable information you provided. Peter Pitts, who is the president and co-founder of Center for Medicine in the Public Interest. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. This is Dean Finale of Politics and Life Science Radio. I want to thank our listeners for joining us today, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to Politics and Life Sciences Radio with Dr. Dean L. Finelli. For more information, check us out at facebook.com slash politics and life sciences.